Please join me in our responsive welcome. No matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. Stories of faith that connect us. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut or Colorado, the United States or Europe or anywhere in the world. As Christians, we believe that the movement toward racial justice is a move toward wholeness. And so we remember the poetic words from the story of creation. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, verse 7, 27. And when the people forget that they are all created in God's image, God sends prophets to remind them that their story is not one of oppression, but of sharing. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. Centuries after this, God continued to call God's people toward a vision of justice, sending prophets like Amos, who said, but let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Amos 5:24. This was, of course, the vision that Jesus lived into. And he taught his disciples to follow it as well. We have in the book of James, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James 2, 8 and 9. And all the struggles do continue today. We are reminded that God's vision and God's movement is towards reconciliation. After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. May this be the vision we are moving toward. This is my photo of Crazy Horse, and this is the only painting I've ever done in my life. Thank you. Um, the painting is called Breakout. It's the only painting I've ever done. Well, these are the times that try men's souls. At this point, we face worldwide climate catastrophe and a worldwide crisis of democracy. They are conjoined twins. Our children are at stake. Mankind's propensity to do good makes democracy possible. Mankind's propensity to do evil makes democracy necessary. Martin Luther King grew up in Atlanta, the second generation out of slavery. 
His father and a grandfather were ministers in the Southern Baptist tradition. Due to World War II demands, Martin entered Morehouse College from the 11th grade in 1944. His mentor was President Benjamin Mays, who delivered the eulogy at Martin's funeral only 24 years later. Martin then entered Crozier Theological Seminary in Baltimore, where he learned of Gandhi from the Reverend Howard Thurman, who with his wife had twice met and traveled with the Indian Hindi liberator. He later earned his doctorate in critical and liberal uh, exegetical theology. Returning to the South, Martin chose Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, landing in the footsteps of the great Vernon Johns. Soon thereafter, Mrs. Joanne Robinson, E.D. Nixon, and Rosa Parks began the Montgomery bus boycott. The battle was on. Miss Ella J. Baker and Bayard Rustin came down from New York and drew up the structure for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which elected the young Dr. King as its president. Not being able to find a man competent enough to do the job, Martin hired Miss Baker as the SCLC executive director for three years. In January 1956, Reverend King's home was first bombed. That night, Martin entered the dark night of his soul. He made a pot of coffee, buried his head in his hands, and cried, Lord, this burden is too heavy for me. I cannot bear it. I'm not ready. His Lord answered him, Martin, you chose Montgomery. This is your path. Keep moving forward. I will walk with you. Thereafter, the Reverend King lived his life, a seamless fusion of ecumenical liberal theology with the fervent passion of Southern Black Baptist freedom faith. We are not afraid. He never looked back. So I'm giving you a mission, but the deeds are all your own. Once you figure what they be, then you can sing them in your song. Now they're going to call you crazy and they'll lock you in their jail. But someday I'll come along to go your bail. A month later, Martin met in his father's house with the top leaders of the black community who implored him to come home to Atlanta. Martin, just 27 years of age, told him, I must go back to Montgomery. It would be the height of cowardice for me to stay away. I have begun the struggle, and I can't turn back. I have reached the point of no return. I heard my father break into tears. Then I looked at Dr. Mays. He was soon defending my position strongly. In May of 1961, the Freedom Riders faced four mobs of thousands of armed southern thugs within one week. When the trailways bus was burned in Anniston, Alabama, the mob attacked. An hour later, another mob attacked the riders on the Greyhound bus in Birmingham. New SNCC riders came down from Nashville to replace the wounded. When they arrived in Montgomery on May 21, another mob attacked. That night, a violent armed mob 
of more than a thousand surrounded the First Baptist Church, throwing bricks and firebombs into the thousand assembled black people inside. 800 National Guardsmen sent by President Kennedy would not arrive for several more hours. At about 11 o'clock that night, Dr. King received a message from the leader of the black taxi cab drivers. Martin, we are out here. We're armed. We're going to come in and rescue you, your people. Martin looked out over the congregation and he said, Raise your hands, all men who are unshakably committed to nonviolence. Out of a thousand people, about six hands went up. He called them up with two or three of his staff members. Martin led his group through the mob. At night, they parted like Moses parting the Red Sea. He went to the head of the taxi drivers and he said, You can't do it this way. Go home. And then he turned around and marched back through the mob. And they parted. And he went back into the church. And the congregation stayed there all night until the National Guard arrived. On January 27, 1965, his hometown of Atlanta honored Dr. King when he returned from Oslo with the Nobel Peace Prize. He said at the gathering, I must confess that I have enjoyed being on this mountaintop, and I am tempted to want to stay here and retreat to a more quiet and serene life. But something within me reminds me the valley calls me with all its agonies, dangers, and frustrating moments. I must return to the valley. The ultimate test of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge and controversy. So I must return to the valley, a valley filled with millions of our white and Negro brothers who are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society. Martin wrote, Every society has its protectors of the status quo and its, in, and its fraternities of the indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through revolutions. But today, our very survival depends upon our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of social change. Together, we must learn to live as brothers, or together, we shall be forced to perish as fools. Crisis means danger plus opportunity. It would take a week to merely list our current dangers and the crimes, the lies, the corruptions, and the treasons committed by our present government. So I will only mention a few to notice. Yet in this proud chaos presidency, we face four or five new items every single day. While much of this is strategic 
distraction. How does one tell the difference between evil and incompetence, between corruption and crazy? Or does it even matter? Should we look at the free press is the enemy of the people? American Nazis in Charlottesville are fine fellows. President Kim Jong-un and I love each other. President Duterte knows how to get rid of the drug problem. I hired the best people. ISIS has been defeated in Syria. I have no dealings with the Russians. Just rake the forest floor like this. Puerto Ricans are just too lazy to take care of themselves. Prince Mohammed Bonsaw says he didn't do it. And what if our genocide in Yemen? Or, I just looked at all the Secret Service vehicles, and every one of them had a wheel. And wheels are older than walls. Boo. One and a half trillion dollars in tax cuts for his billionaire buddies to be paid for by us. Abolishing evidence-based research from the National Institute of Health. Oh, and shut down the government. Where did all this come from? Benjamin Franklin was asked, What kind of a government do we have? He replied, A republic, if we can keep it. The game began in 1947, when 36 imperialist economists met in Switzerland and formed the Mount Pelerin Society to overthrow the worldwide proliferation of liberal democracy. This meeting, parallel to the beginning of the Cold War, was launched in view of the frightening success of the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, which, with vastly expanded workers' rights, the GI Bill, access to home ownership and higher education, created a middle-class society. From Switzerland, they took over the University of Chicago School of Economics. The three greatest signal victories of worldwide counter-revolution were the Reagan Revolution election of 1980, the Gingrich takeover of Congress in 1994, which ended civil discourse, and for many, the 2016 election in the United States, which has promoted chaos and hatred as the modus operandi of 21st century political discourse. The Supreme Court, the supreme clue to this whole game was the launching of Ronald Reagan's campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the most symbolic racist town in America. It's irrelevant whether the persons speaking are racist themselves, but the core foghorn to manipulate the voting public has always been racism. The fake populist narrative is always that of victimhood and revenge sometimes generalized as otherism. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis as he launched the Poor People's Campaign, expanded the vision of the civil rights movement to include all people who are denied the entire 
and denied access to a decent, humane quality of life. Our entire American narrative, now for half a century, was murdered by the same bullet which killed the prophet of peace. Martin was a deep prophetic thinker. Whatever, wherever Martin saw his duty, he did not shirk. He was a drum major for justice. Martin was an apostle of love. Bayard Rustin said Martin Luther King could not organize his way out of a paper bag, but gosh, he could preach. The Battle of Selma was for more than a hamburger or a cup of coffee or even a bus ride. Selma came on the map of the world for the right to vote. Yet now this basic right is being stripped away from us. Elections have consequences. Last fall, the people spoke a resounding, Yes, we have elected the most diverse and likely the youngest Congress ever seated. What now shall we do? Martin Luther King knew the immense task which was set before him. Even in sharp dispute, like with my friend Stokely Carmichael during the march against fear in Mississippi, Martin never lost his cool. He always knew he had a higher calling. Once while at a steak dinner with his staff, someone brought Martin a copy of Rampart's magazine with the photo of the little Vietnamese girl running naked down the road after being bombed by our planes. Martin pushed away his plate with tears in his eyes. Ralph said, Martin, doesn't the steak taste good? Martin responded, David, Nothing again will ever taste good until we are out of Vietnam. What are we to do? Back in the 50s, we had models to emulate. Highlander Folk School, the Settlement House Movement, rural communes such as Cornell in southwest Georgia, which led to the Habitat for Humanity. When Mrs. Ella Baker gathered the sit-in movement kids in 1960 and invented SNCC. She sent Bob Moses and Charles Sherrod and others down to meet with her own personal friends throughout the Deep South. In 1941 and 1942, Miss Baker organized perhaps 200 chapters of the NAACP throughout the Deep South. Medgar Evers came back a war hero and built up the state organization in Mississippi. Daisy Bates organized the Little Rock Movement. Reverend Jemison led the bus boycott in Baton Rouge in 1953. Mrs. Septima Clark and Esau Jenkins, a bus driver, began the citizenship schools in South Carolina. We had elders. Our little band of organizers, especially SNCC, monitored, mentioned, ment ment mentored by Ms. Baker, became for a while the beloved community under fire. We were not strong enough to survive as a group under years of constant trauma, terror. And yet, so far as I know, 
every civil rights movement veteran still alive is still involved. With their hands on that plow, hold on, hold on. Today, young farmers, beekeepers, organic gardeners, carbon farmers, farmers, sanctuary churches, communities, scientists, poets, save our creeks, our rivers, our forests, our whales, oceans, butterflies, milkweed, soil. Hundreds, thousands of grouplets are building. We must learn to and how to build the beloved community. Today, our minister, Reverend Sarah, and 18 members of this Longmont UCC church are in Puerto Rico at this moment, rebuilding hurricane-destroyed homes. With John Rosticus and other great carpenters, we rebuilt many flood-damaged homes here in Longmont. Edwina Salazar has spent 25 years creating the Hour Center and growing it from a food pantry into a major social institution which aids hundreds of local folks in all realms of life skills and resources. I met twice last week with Hunter Lovins, who was recently asked by the Club of Rome, Hunter, is there any hope? In response, in here somewhere, she wrote this new book, A Finer Future. She declares that the world fossil economy will collapse within 15 years. We must have new social structures in place to survive, to thrive from the soil of this collapse. She indicates the blooming power of dozens of new forms of cooperative, organic, local, life-enhancing, regional, democratic, spiritual, artistic forms of being which have now broken through the polished cynicism of business as usual, as practiced by both political parties for the past generation. Not only how to build the beloved community, but how it is already being accomplished. The technology is here. The beginnings are in place. The spirit is blooming. Get on board, children, children. Get on board, children, children. Get on board, children, children. Let's build a brand new world. Martin Luther King would have loved with all his heart to pour his life and soul into such a growing endeavor as this. Yet a pathway had yet to be blazed through dark times. Such a path of brambles and quicksand looms before us today. In his last presidential address to SCLC, Martin quoted James Weldon, Johnson, stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. Every man lives in two realms, the internal and the external. 
The internal is that realm expressed in art, literature, morals, and religion. The external is that complex of devices and techniques and mechanisms and instrumentalities by which, by means of which we live. Our problem today is that we have allowed, allowed the internal to become lost in the external. We have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. When we so foolishly minimize the internal of our lives and maximize the external, we sign the warrant for our own day of doom. The last time I saw Martin Luther King was in May of 1965. He called me to meet him in the airport in Washington, D.C. When Martin saw me, he came over to me clasped my hand in both of his. He enclosed $25 and a plane ticket to Atlanta. He looked into my eyes. He said, Give him hell, Arkansas. Gosh, Martin, I'm trying. The only time I saw Martin speak to all of mankind was in Montgomery, March 25, 1965. I sat in the street in the rain with Joan Baez, Cleve Sellers, and Jim Foreman. I have a picture somewhere. Martin told us they segregated money from the poor whites. They segregated southern mores from the rich whites. They segregated southern churches from Christianity. They segregated southern minds from honest thinking. And they segregated the Negro from everything no matter how difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. Because truth pressed to earth will rise again. How long? Not long. Because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long. Because you reap what you sow. How long? Not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpets which shall never call retreat. He is lifting up the hearts of man before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Friends, I do believe that we will live in peace someday, and you are those workers. So as you return to the world, go strengthened, go transformed. And go knowing that the love of God enfolds you. The power of God protects you. The presence of God watches over you. And wherever you are, God is. Go in peace.